This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. It's cool to have somebody who knows the history, really knows the history. So has Dinesh been down here before? I don't think so. Dinesh, have you been, this is your first time here, isn't it? Glenn, I've never been here. Yeah. Incredible. Good wow. to have you. Thank you. Thank you. You're going to love it. Love um, it, love it, love it. We, uh, he's been spending the day with uh, Jeremy. Oh, we've been going through um, the vaults and having some fun. Because you, um, I wanted you to teach pretty much what you have, you know, in your film and in your book, the, the roots of the Democratic Party. But I thought we had some things here that would back it up. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually show pieces of history. Totally. Yeah. Yes. This is a party whose uh, history has been camouflaged and um, has been, uh, the history books have been written by the Democrats. So they've yeah. told it, in, at the least you can say from their point of view, but they've left a few things out. And so part of what I've been trying to do is reconstruct that history right. and put it out there. And, and the Democrats were around from the beginning, yeah, not from the founding. The, uh, you had the Federalist Party, and then Thomas Jefferson started. Well, it came to be called the Democratic-Republican Party, okay. and it was so the party... So that makes it sound like they used to be combined, is that...? <laughs> they were combined, and in fact, the Democratic-Republican Party split into the Democratic Party, and then later, the Republican Party. Oh, my goodness. When did the Whigs come in? Right, so the Whigs were in between. It, when, when, <laughs> what happened was that... It sounds good that we had a bunch of parties that would die off quickly. Yeah, essentially what happened is that Jefferson's Democratic-Republican Party became the only party in America because the Federalists died out. So okay. there was one party. And then that party... How did that work? The Federalists essentially became... They, they took a devastating loss in the election of 1800. And then Jefferson was re-elected. Uh, and then the Federalists just sort of melted away. And so you had a one-party system in America. Wow. And, was it good or bad? Well... Uh, it, it represented the triumph of Jeffersonian agricultural interests. It was anti-commercial uh, because Jefferson didn't like Hamilton's emphasis on mm-hmm. money and cities. Uh, Jefferson was the party of agrarian virtue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, um, uh, and then later the, um, there, was a f- there was a division within this Democratic-Republican Party and Andrew Jackson broke off. Uh, and he started the Democratic Party. I I have some things from Andrew Jackson. Come here. So a couple of things. This is not Andrew Jackson. This is Helen Hunt Jackson, but it it involves Andrew Jackson. Helen Hunt was this woman, um, this is about 1875, 1880, and she 
is living up in Boston, and she doesn't know anything about the Native Americans. And two tribes, I can't remember which one of them was, but the second one was the Omaha, Omaha tribe. And they were making a tour of the East Coast, and they were trying to get people to pay attention and say, wow, this is pretty outrageous what's happening by the U.S. government to, this, to the tribes. She became an activist, the first female um, activist for the Native Americans. She wrote A Century of Dishonor, a sketch of the United, Na- United States government dealing with some of the Indian tribes. She really thought that she would tell the story and everybody would care. Nobody cared. <laughs> um, and it had uh, very, these are very rare, um, but the role that it did play is this started a movement and the new activists that came up in the ranks started to pay attention to this book later on and starting to take care of the Indians. But Andrew Jackson was the guy who really kind of started. Yeah, Jackson was the, um, as a general, the guy who was on the front line fighting these Indian tribes. Now, there was a great deal of appetite for Indian land because the country was expanding, immigrants were coming in. So the Indians were inconvenient. They were sitting on this land, and they weren't using all of it. Right. Uh, but it was their land. Right. And, uh, and although they had given up a lot of it, they still possessed a lot of it. And so Jackson posed as the friend of the Indians. In fact, he, would, he literally would write them letters calling him their father. He'd go, your father has decided there's good news for you to be moving further oh west. Oh, my gosh. And so Jackson played this role as protecting the Indians, but his real goal was to relocate them, to build a constituency of white settlers who would become devoted to him because he gave them this land. Sounds familiar. And to make some money on the side. He, he, was, he strikes me as much of the, the uh, clan, if you will, that's, that's in power now, where... Um, he got rich off of selling some of the land, knowing that it was going to come up for sale, and sending his own real estate people out, didn't he? Yeah, he would, he would, <laughs> he sent in surveyors. Yeah. Our surveyors protected by armed guards who would go into the Indian lands, and this is when the Indians were still on it, and they would determine the value of the land, and then they'd come tell Jackson. Jackson would round up an investment consortium of his own cronies, and they would then bid on the land early, sometimes even before the Indians had been evacuated. Um, and, and, and then they would buy the land at bargain basement prices, sell it for a huge profit. So Andrew Jackson went from being dead broke, to use Hillary's phrase, to becoming, he had in today's money $100 million. And so he then went and bought the Hermitage, a beautiful plantation in Tennessee. What would you do if you're a rich guy in Tennessee? You've got a bunch of slaves. And so he began a functioning slave plantation. So he was, this is the birth of the, of the Democratic Party, was Andrew Jackson. The Democratic Party became, through Jackson, the party of the, the, the white man right. and the party of the settler uh, and uh, also the party of slavery. Um, before we go back into slavery, I want to show you one thing. I don't know if Jeremy showed you this earlier or not. You know who Iron Tail is? Yes. Iron Tail is, you, you know his face, um, but this 
was a medallion, Jefferson uh, medallion, given uh, as a medal of honor for Iron Tail from the president. He wore it like that, and it was worn as a real medal of honor. That's an American uh, peace medal. Um, Iron Tail is the Indian chief that's on the Buffalo Nickel. You know, what's interesting about all this is that today in the textbooks, they make it seem like the real criminals in dealing with the Indians were the founders. Uh, or to go even further back, um, Columbus. Yeah. Genocide, the found. Well, first of all, it wasn't genocide. The Indians contracted diseases to which they had no immunities. The American founders were quite pro-Indian. Jefferson dealt very gently, very cautiously. Now, they, they didn't have the Rousseau, noble, savage romance with the Indian. They right. knew the Indian was a tough guy, right. and they knew they had to deal with the Indian on that basis, but they There didn't. were some that believed that they were uh, the lost tribe of Israel. Jefferson yes. and, and Adams had this argument back and forth. They thought there was some... Spe- it's very racist the way you look at it now, because it, it was almost paternal, like... We have, to, we have to be good to them and bring them into the fold of Christ. So you could look at it that way, but they were not slaughtering them. No, and in fact, a number of the founders thought that the way to solve the problem with the Indians was ultimately intermarriage. So what was considered impossible with regard to blacks was seen as not only possible but desirable. And Jefferson, in the notes on the state of Virginia, he, you know, he expresses some doubt about the intelligence of the black man. This is a sort of, yeah. there's a racist yeah. element in Jefferson here. But, he goes, contrast this with the Indian who has all the same intelligence as the white man. He simply doesn't have the education. He hasn't had a chance to cultivate it. But Jefferson had no doubt that the Indian was equally capable. So let's go over here because I think Jeremy has some things on slavery laid out for us, and I need the peace medal back. Hmm. Although well, you do look like a insi- rapper. If you insist. Yeah. It was looking good on me. I know. I love the, the hand of the Native American and the American with the peace pipe. Peace and friendship, which is not, that's not what we're, we're taught in school. No, that's true. Okay, so the difference, the, they didn't see a difference um, uh, with Native Americans, but they did with African-Americans. Yeah, you know, Tocqueville in the 1830s makes a very insightful observation about this. He goes, the, the American Indian um, never wanted to be a part of white society. Mm-hmm. And, and that was his tragedy, that there was no place for him in America. The African wanted to, but was never allowed to. So mm-hmm. Tocqueville has this essay called The Three Races of the United States in which he discusses how the um, experience of um, American Indians and experience of blacks, although similar in some ways, was very different in other ways. So the, the um, Jackson starts the Democratic Party. We have already, the founders sprinkled the seeds to stop slavery. Um, they wanted to end it right away. They couldn't, but they stopped the importation in the early 1800s. Yep. Then what happens with Jackson? Well, you can see the effect so of So wait, the- I've never heard that. What? That they stopped the importation. I mean, yeah. I never got taught that in school. Yeah, that's, that was the three-fifths crop compromise, right? Well, the founders outlawed the slave trade as of, I believe, 1808. So they outlawed it as of 20 years or 15 years ahead. Um, and um, um, 
Then uh, what happened was um, the invention of the cotton gin came to at the very end of the 19th century. That gave a big boost to slavery. The founders had no idea this was coming. So then slavery actually began to increase in the 19th century. But even wait, though, but even, wait, I thought they had banned it. 1808, well, you couldn't import any right, more slaves. Exactly. So the founders wouldn't allow new slaves to come from Africa, but what had happened was that the slaves were reproducing in, in America. And so by having So kids, there was still a slave trade you could sell them, they just had to be American-born. Yeah, you, oh, could, you, just, you just couldn't bring them in from the outside. But you can see the effect of the founding. Before the founding, slavery was legal in all states. Yes. And essentially, 20 years after the founding, slavery had become a, a regional institution. Southern, um, Southern. All, virtually all the northern states had either outlawed it or were in the process of shutting it down. Yeah. And it was going on in the South mainly because of the now the great economic viability of it. And the Industrial Revolution was, was fueled with cotton right. and textiles, which were being exported to, to Britain. And the Democratic Party then became the champion of slavery. It became the party in defense of slavery. Um, the Democrats have hidden this. They say, no, slavery was the South. But the Northern Democrats protected slavery. Stephen Douglas, the champion of the Northern Democrats, was a great defender of slavery. He was in league with the Southern Democrats, and the party North and South understood its job was not only to keep slavery going, but to extend it, to expand it. And that's really what ultimately the Civil War was about. It wasn't even about ending slavery. It was about ending the expansion of slavery. That's what, you know, it's funny because slavery, you know, I'm Mormon, and that's what the driving out of the Mormons, uh, at least the way the Mormons look at it, part of the real reason of the Mormons being driven out of Missouri was because they were anti-slavery. And they, there was a lot of money to be made, and they didn't like that. The, the, the progressive historians today will defend Douglas um, and say, well, he wasn't really pro-slavery because he said, let each state vote for slavery up or down. But Douglas would advocate an expansion of the American empire to go through South America, covering all of Mexico, and he wanted slavery south of the Mason-Dixon line to last forever, forever. Uh, So he saw a world in which slavery would never be abolished. Now, this is totally different from the founders. The founders didn't like slavery. They didn't know what to do with it. Jefferson calls it the wolf by the tail. But they had... The wolf by the tail. He goes, we've got this wolf by the tail. Mm -hmm. He goes, we can't hold him. But we can't really let him go. And, and, and um, Benjamin Franklin died. They, they called him insane, senile, because he became such a huge abolitionist. By the end of his life, they tried everything they could to discredit him. But that's not what we hear about the founders no, today at all. No, no, And Jefferson was, you know, interestingly, Jefferson was a very secular guy. He was the, probably one of the least religious of the founders. But whenever he talked about slavery... He sounded like a preacher. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, he'd say things like, the Almighty has no attribute that can take our side on this issue. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Um, his justice will not sleep forever. Yeah. This is Jefferson. So what are all these items at the end of the table here, Jeremy? We've, got, we've pulled a couple. Dinesh and I sat down and kind of went through what we had. Um, interesting letter uh, from Abraham Lincoln. I love this. Did you, have you ever seen this? Have you ever even heard of this? Yeah, I, I know the text of this letter um, from the work of Harry Jaffa in his book, Crisis of the House Divided. So nobody, this isn't in any history book at school. No, this is... Um, We're taught that Abraham Lincoln didn't care about the black man, didn't care about slavery. This is, this is what, five years prior to him 
coming into office. He's a lawyer here, and that's incredible when you look at how a lawyer would think and how would you argue before two neutral parties, hey, what? This is the Abraham Lincoln letter where he's saying, if person A says that he can enslave person B because his skin is lighter, be careful, because the next person that has a lighter skin than you, if I said I could enslave Dinesh because his skin was lighter, be careful that we don't ever let a Swede into this room, or he can enslave me. By that same law. Yeah. Well, this is is the, the, the power of Lincoln's thought, because the Democrats would say, we're enslaving the the black man for his own benefit. He's inferior, and therefore it's his destiny to be uh, a server rather than a leader. And uh, so Lincoln goes, wait a minute. If you're allowed to enslave your intellectual and social inferiors, there are intellectual and social inferiors among whites. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing in the principle of slavery, according to you, that prevents white slavery. So Lincoln was ultimately alerting the North to how insidious this principle was. But that's the same principle that leads to Nazism from the other side, right? Like we're we're superior. 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 Mm -hmm. And he's dismantling that. But that is Jackson and and the whole... I think Jackson, I think the Republic actually ended as the founders knew it at Jackson. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I, I think that the, once the, uh, the I, you know, slavery's been around. So slavery's yeah. been around since the dawn of mankind. But uh, never before did anyone defend slavery as good for the slave. Everyone would defend slavery as justified by necessity. So Aristotle goes, in any civilization, there's a lot of dirty work to be done. You need some guys to do it. So why not use our captives in war? Let's make them do it. Right. Uh, but that is a moderate defense of slavery because it's based on necessity. Um, But the South, and particularly the Democratic South, came up with this idea that slavery is a school of civilization. It's good for the slave. Good for the slave. We just had... Give me me that. We just had... This stuff here is good for the slave. Yeah. Ankle chains. But yeah, I was going to say, how is is keeping someone a captive good for them, right? Like, I I sort of understand what you said. You you conquered someone. You you make them work for you. But this is not conquering them. This is just making them captive... Because you're saying they're inferior and therefore it's good for them? So we're beginning to see something that we've seen in the Democratic Party for a long time, and that is naked self-interest camouflaged as morality, right? You're, you're ripping the slave off, you're stealing his labor, you know? And, and Lincoln, to his credit, you know, Lincoln kept getting attacked with things like, you believe that the black man is equal to the white man. Now, if Lincoln said he did, there was enough racial prejudice at that time that his career would have ended right then and there. So what Lincoln would do is he would sidestep the issue, and he would say things like, you know, um, if God had given the black man little, that little let him enjoy. In other words, what, uh, and this actually picks up on something Jefferson said. Even Jefferson, when he speculated that blacks may be inferior, he goes, whatever be their talents, it is no measure of their rights. Meaning, mm, wow. it doesn't matter if the guy's inferior. He still gets the right to keep what he's earned. In Lincoln's words, the guy who grows the corn should have the right to put that corn in his own mouth. That's the anti-slavery principle. And if you think about it, that's still the principle of the Republican Party. We should keep the fruits of our own labor. And it's still the principle of the Democratic Party that someone else gets to it confiscate those, those fruits and take possession They're of still them. slaves and still masters. And they're still making, the, the state's still making money off of them. I mean, th- this is a, it looks like a dog tag. It does. This is from Charlotte, right? Yeah. Um, this is, you had to go, just like you have to license your dog, you had to license your slave. And they wore them around their neck. So this, 
the state, or in this case the city, was making money. Can I hold yeah. that? Yeah. Tax it would be a tax for yeah. their slaves. That was slave 1041. Pretty, pretty, pretty intense. Now, interestingly, there has been a very uh, subtle campaign of vilification against Lincoln, founder of the Republican Party, our greatest president, in the idea that he didn't ultimately care about slavery. That he was, and, and Lincoln does seem to support this when he says things like, I'm fighting for the Union. And he at one point says, if I could save the Union without freeing a single slave, I That's, would do it. This is right. like the, this is like the, um, the burning uh, proof that supposedly Lincoln was not anti-slavery. But in reality, what had happened was when the Civil War broke out, a bunch of southern states seceded, but the border states did not. Maryland didn't secede. And that, initially, Virginia hadn't seceded. Kentucky hadn't seceded. Neither had Missouri. And I think Lincoln believed that if all those states seceded, the cause of the Union was lost. So he had to keep the border states in the Union, and the border states had slaves. So Lincoln, once the war started, redefined the war as protecting the Union because he had the diplomatic challenge of preserving the border states in the Union. That is now used as evidence that he was a liar. He didn't really believe what he said. He was not really, he didn't really care about slavery. All not true. It is the job of a statesman to maintain the anti-slavery coalition that enabled the Republicans to win the Civil War. Okay, so I, I, I want to ask you, you just said Lincoln was the, um, the main guy who started the Republican Party. I contend it was this guy, unbeknownst to him. What's wild? I'm not sure if this one. Might not go to that. Might go to this one here. Yeah. What's wild about this is these are not keys; they're just it's a screw. Oh, I see. It's a a screw screw. functioning as a key. As a key. And when I first saw these locks, this is a pipe. It's just a pipe, and they made it into a, a, a lock. And I first saw this and I thought, man, you take away the simplest of tool and you're a slave. Right, right. <laughs> the simplest of tools and you're a slave. So this is Charles, Charles Sumner. This is the speech, um, Dinesh, that he started to give and then was beaten down. Um, and it's the apologies for the crime, the true remedy, the crime against Kansas. And this is talking about how they are spreading slavery. The Democrats want to spread slavery. This is the speech after he gets well again, after the beatdown in the Senate. Um, four years later, this is 1860, the barbarism of slavery. He is the moment, I think, where the Republican Party coalesced. coalesces. Yeah, I mean, the beating of Sumner was a, uh, by Preston Brooks, who was a Democratic congressman who kind of made his way through the, into the Senate and then just flogged him with a cane, almost killing him. Yeah. And, uh, and Sumner was, um, along with Thaddeus Stevens and others, a group, a faction called the Radical Republicans. These were the sort of hardcore Republicans, you might say. They wanted to end slavery here and now. Interestingly, Lincoln denied that he was a member of this group. He always said... Um, no, his, his main problem with the group was that these guys, because they were so radical, um, would burn the Constitution. They would burn the Declaration of Independence. They blamed the founders for allowing slavery at all. And so politically... The early Republicans did. The early Republicans were... Yes. Amazing. So they, did they blame them like we blame them today? Or did they understand, that, did they think they just hadn't gone far enough in getting rid of it? 
Right. They, they blame them for not getting rid of slavery. They blame the founders for allowing it to continue at all. Now, Lincoln's point was that the founders were hemmed in by necessity. Think of it this way. You, you meet in Philadelphia, you have 13 states, slavery is legal in all of them. Now, how can you have a union based on slavery? You'll have no, no one's going to join. The, certainly the southern states aren't going to join. So the, so the founders you, you, could, you could look at it. You could look at it as the people who are saying, I hate Hillary Clinton, but I can't vote for Trump, or I can't stand... Those were exactly the abolitionists. Donald Trump, I have to vote for Hillary. Wow. You know what okay. I mean? It's the I, I, I think it's exactly the same logic. Yeah. Now, I also want to point out the, the, the weakness of the logic, though, which is that the abolitionists by themselves could never have ended slavery. They just didn't have the power to do it. It's only when the abolitionists were integrated into a Republican Party that included a lot of people like Lincoln. Lincoln's position was we should not allow slavery to, con- to expand. And his view was similar to the way we thought about the Soviet Union. If you could contain the Soviet Union, it would implode of its own weight. Uh, and the Southerners, by the way, agreed. They felt that slavery needs to go into South America, into Mexico, it, because they felt that only an expanding slave empire will nourish and sustain slavery. Oh, oh it'll my goodness. So in the 19th century, the Republicans were anti-expansionist. Lincoln opposed the Mexican War, whereas uh, the Southerners were all for the Mexican War because they thought, this is going to bring new territory into America that's pro-slavery. Wow. Um, so that was the hidden agenda of the Mexican War, was the slavery issue. And, uh, and this is a very interesting part of our history. So Sumner, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, they were a vital part of making the moral argument against slavery. But it did take the Republican Party in 1860 to end it. Did we find a, did we find a platform of... Jeremy, what do we have? So, let's see, 56, 60 right here, Republican platform... And that's uh, later, 74. So this is a 1860 that we found right here. Yeah, this, is the, this would be the Republican platform, 1860, that, that was um, mobilized in opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And it was aimed at blocking the spread of slavery. Now, here's an interesting point about Lincoln. Lincoln admitted that if he had violated the constitutional rights of the South, the South would have every right to secede. But Lincoln said, look, you lost an election, right? I haven't taken away your free speech. I haven't stopped you from voting. None of your constitutional rights have I taken away. And therefore, your argument that you have a right to secede is not valid. But even a majority does not have the right to take away the rights of a minority. Mm. And if I were to do that, you'd have every every right to go. Um, so even though Lincoln was the great opponent of secession, you see in Lincoln a possible argument for why secession might be why valid. Why do Southerners, I mean, I find this occasionally, they hate him still. And they're just, they're just like, he is, Glenn Beck, you hate progressives. He is the most evil president of all time. They just hate Lincoln. Have you run into that? Oh, yeah. There's a, what there's, is the deal? There is a kind of neo-Confederate argument, even alive today, that blames Lincoln for all of it. Uh, and it's, Lincoln is the founder of the centralized government yeah. because the federal government did expand in the Civil War, but it expanded, I mean, governments expand in times of war. The government contracted at the end of the war, Which just like American government expanded in World War II. Um, and um, they, wanted, they wanted Lincoln to cut a deal with the South. And Lincoln's point was, if I do that, I'm canceling the results of my own election. Uh, he goes, we had an election. He goes, I don't even have the power to cancel the outcome of it. And the election was over the issue 
of whether slavery should be allowed to spread, yes or no. Now, remarkably, the Democrats, when once the South seceded, the Northern Democrats did not go along. They did not support secession. But they worked to undermine Lincoln mm-hmm. during throughout the war. Mm-hmm. They were called the Copperheads. And Lincoln called them the fire in the rear, meaning they're the bad guys on my own team <laughs> who are trying to pull me down. And, um, and the, the slogan... The guys in the rear. Yeah. You wouldn't the say that now. Their slogan was, was the Constitution as it was and the Union as it was. In other words, they wanted to bring back slavery after mm. the Civil War. Well, so then, so then the, the war happens and the Democrats turn into the guys who love the black people? I mean, okay. What happens Here's, then? This is, a, this is a pamphlet right after the Civil War. Why I will not vote Democratic ticket. I am opposed to the Democratic Party, and I'll tell you why. Every state that seceded from the United States was a democratic state. Every ordinance of secession that was drawn uh, was drawn by a Democrat. Every man that endeavored to tear the old flag from the heaven that it enriches was a Democrat. Every enemy of the great republic has, ha- has had for the last 20 years has been a Democrat. Every man shot uh, that was a Union soldier was shot by a Democrat. I mean, then it goes on. Right. I mean, so you couldn't... I mean, if you did that today, and you have tried. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've I know. watched you try. Yeah. If you did that today, you'd get lambasted. So, they're, obviously, well, you know, they're falling apart. How did they rebuild themselves? So there's a few things that I have at the vault that I don't keep in the vault at my house. I don't even keep them in my house. I have a separate little room for because they're so spooky and evil. What um, kind of things? A few things from the Nazis and a few things uh. from America like this I don't like to keep in the house. This is from, um, which is even spookier, what people thought it was when I showed it the first time. They thought it was a clan outfit for a kid but this is actually from 1920 this is a a clan outfit from a woman and the you know it's a woman's because you could see the face because you can see the face wait 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 so in this is sort of the opposite of everything that i everything that i think of because i think of the i think of the clan i mean i think of all all Organizations where you have to cover your face as the women covering their face. Yeah, no, they, because the men had to do the dirty work. Right, the Klan would do the, what's called night riding, and they would go on horseback, and the, the whole point was to... Well, originally in the 19th century, the main target of the Klan was not blacks. It was white Republicans. Because right. What? The, the, yes. Right, the white Republicans were seen as coming from the north to bully the south. And they're like, uh, the, the Klan is our little army. Right. And it's a, so it's a political army. At first, the Klan is just nothing more than the brown shirts, a political army to keep people in line with the Democratic vote, because that way the Democrats can have enough power to reverse this atrocity. Correct? Right. I mean, uh, a Confederate general, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is a delegate to the Democratic National Convention, he starts the Klan with a bunch of other people in Pulaski, Tennessee. And the Klan grows. Now, the Republicans get word of it. And so they pass a series of laws outlawing the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan Acts of 1871. And really, by about 1875, the Klan goes out of business. There's no more Ku Klux Klan. It's gone. And, and, and so, you know, Bedford Forrest is... We have a friend who in his vault has his actual sword. And it is the most evil thing of all time because he would 
fillet people during the war. He was hideous. And he would take and he would skin black people and whites. So there would be a white skin on a barn and a black skin next to it. And that was a message. You're not free. That man, that man tried to free that man and they're both dead and we'll do it to you. I mean, he's evil. So I know you've reached out to, um, to Black Lives Matter, but it sounds to me like the, like, like the Black Lives Matter, right? Like somebody taking a group of people and putting them in a thing that makes a political statement yes. by being yes. violent, by, yes. you know, by urging them on to a violent... I think, but better than Black Lives Matter, I think it is the brown shirts. The Klan is... The, because the brown shirts were just a political arm of the Nazis, where this, the Klan, is nothing more than the military arm of the Democrats. Correct? Correct. Well, it, it became that in the early 20th century. The Klan has a major revival. And actually, President Wilson has a lot to do with that because... I hate that uh, Let me look at this thing here. This is the birth of a nation. So this is actually one of the most... Actually, one of the most uh, important movies in the history of film, it's the first uh, moving motion picture, and it was screened in the White House for the cabinet. It was the first motion picture ever to be screened in the United States. It starts out as the, the birth of a nation actually comes from Woodrow Wilson's book, what was it, something about the American history or something, and then it's written into a play, and then D.W. Griffith makes it into a movie, and it... It makes the Klan the hero. The clan, the Klansmen are the heroes because what's happening is these aggressive, uh, lustful blacks are like taking over the South and they're raping white women and they're going nuts. And suddenly you see in all these white robes and this is, this would be, these are like the World War II movies where the American soldiers come in at the end and save the day. The Klan saves the day. The Ku Klux Klan is the hero of this movie. And, um, and when Wilson did this, um, uh, there was a Klan revival, and now for the first time, the Klan wasn't just in the South. It was in the Midwest and in the West. So you had Klan chapters kind of across the country, uh, including places like New Jersey. And the Klan in the 1920s had four to five million members. Um, what? 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 In four to five million? Yeah. I mean, yeah. As a percentage of the country. Yeah. Oh, but that's nothing. There was a resolution in the 1925 Democratic Convention to condemn the Klan. It failed. And tens of thousands of Klansmen marched on New York City and Fifth Avenue, Here. shouting racist slogans. They were burning crosses. Here, this um, is just, I'm not sure which city this is, but this is just, this is a Klan parade down the, down the city street. And it, it, it happened all over. I, I remember when I first moved to New York to Connecticut, um, and I remember my daughter saying, Dad, Dad, don't. Dad, don't say anything. What's that? Don't say anything. And it was a guy dressed in a Klan outfit. Oh, yeah. In Connecticut in the 90s. And I remember pulling my car over saying, what is wrong with you, dude? And he's, you know, I mean, it was nuts. So wait, he was just walking down no, the street? No, he was protesting by himself on the street, full Klan wear. I mean, it still exists. And, it, and Wilson, the Democrat, the progressives, brought it back full force. Yeah, it was the instrument of maintaining white supremacy in the South. And, um, and um, that one says, interestingly, today is Election Day. Do not fail to vote on the horse with the Klansmen on the corner of a street. you got to vote. Help you know, us out. Um, we turn to uh, Robert Byrd, the um, mm-hmm. leader of the Senate, longtime Democrat, died in 2010. 
Uh, Robert Byrd said that the guy who talked him into getting into politics was the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, that guy told him, Robert, you've got a future in politics. We need you. Go for it. And that's how Byrd launched his career. Hugo Black, appointed by FDR to the Supreme Court. Klansman. And very eye-opening, uh, Hugo Black in his memoirs says when he went in to see FDR, he said, FDR, I better tell you, I've spent a long career in the Ku Klux Klan. FDR goes, no problem. Uh, Black goes, but FDR, are you telling me that it's, this is not going to be an issue in my nomination? FDR goes, some of my best friends are in the Klan. Nope, I have no objection to this whatsoever. Now, interestingly, the progressives later look at all this and they go, uh-oh, this is all very embarrassing. So they don't... When, when did that split happen? Because the progressives in the early 20th century love the Klan. And, and remember the argument you said earlier that it's just that in reverse? Yeah. They believe they're a superior race. The Democrats need an enforcement arm of the superior race. Eugenics comes in and says, yeah, you are a superior race and we can... We can outbreed all of these, these uh, undesirables. When Margaret Sanger talks about giving a speech, she says, oh, I got an invitation from the New Jersey chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. It was the women's chapter. And all these women appeared in these robes to listen to her. Now, she describes it as if she's talking to the Rotary Club. Uh, and then she goes, many Klan invitations followed. Uh, she doesn't say whether she accepted them or not. But so here you see the, the marriage of social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. And you can see how Sanger is... Idea. So when was the split with the Klan, or has it? The split with the Klan really developed between the 1930s and the 60s, where the Democrats realized that their old strategy was sorely limited. I mean, you think about it, from 1865, the end of the Civil War, to the New Deal, the Republicans were the, were the majority party nationwide. The Democrats were the majority in the South, but they couldn't win the country. Uh, and so the Democrats realized, we need to figure out a way... We need a new strategy. If we're going to become the majority party, and the Great Depression was the crisis that should never go to waste, it was the opportunity to formulate a new winning strategy, but it required modifying a lot of the old ideas. Now, not getting rid of them, but changing their form. Yeah, so before we go there, let me take you back to Teddy Roosevelt. I have something over here I want to show you from Teddy Roosevelt that's really rare. So you know the Teddy Roosevelt dinner with Booker T. Washington. Yes. Okay. No, I don't know the Teddy Roosevelt dinner okay. with Booker T. Washington. Right. So you, you guys wanna, can talk to each other. You guys talk in this other like, history right. language. So these are the letters uh, from uh, Theodore Roosevelt to Booker T. And Theodore Roosevelt, Booker T. is an amazing guy. He wrote the book Up From Slavery. He remembers being freed. He remembers uh, the Emancipation Proclamation being read. Um, he grows up. He becomes uh, uh, a leader in the black community, and Theodore Roosevelt thinks that's great, loves this guy, says now he's in office for, well, this is in October 16th, so he's in office just a few months, and he says, hey, I want to have that Booker T. Washington guy for dinner. So this is the, you know, dear President Roosevelt, I, 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 am, I shall be glad to accept your invitation. Well, beside Frederick Douglass, who actually literally had to climb through the White House window to get to Lincoln, nobody's had dinner with the president. No black man's had dinner, okay? So this is a very big deal. And um, he then goes on and says, he goes back to um, his uh, Tuskegee uh, Institute and in Alabama, and he says, by the way, I know what you want to do. There are some politicians down here 
they're lying to you. And a black man will tell you which ones are the good ones and which ones aren't. Okay. And then this is the, these are the, the Democratic Party leadership uh, responding to this dinner. Um, so this would be um, Senator James Vardaman. He goes, I am just as opposed to Booker T. Washington with all his Anglo-Saxon reinforcements as I am to the coconut-headed, chocolate-colored, typical little coon, Andy Dotson, who blacks my shoes every morning. Now, think about this for a minute. What the guy is really saying is that he doesn't like the educated black man even more than the ignorant black guy because the educated black man is a threat. The Democratic Party wanted to keep all blacks in complete servility. And here's, here's another guy. This is Senator Bel- Benjamin Tillman, Democrat. He goes, now that Roosevelt has eaten with that nigger, Washington, we shall have to kill a thousand niggers to get them back to their place. So this guy's going, wow, this guy just made my job more difficult mm-hmm. because if you're going to keep the black man down, you need to threaten you and intimidate them. You can't put them in the You're giving them all kinds of ideas now by feeding them in the White House mess. But look how far we've come. I know. We just elected a black I know. president. Look how far we have come. And think about this. This hundred years ago, this is a pen that says equality and has the white president and the black man. And this was, you wore that, you were a very brave person. Because this is also what happened. Afterwards, six months hence, this is a very popular poem at the time in the South. Excuse the language. Niggers in the White House. Things at the White House looking mighty curious. Niggers running everywhere. White people furious. Uh, Ends on the front porch, on the gable, in the dining room, at the table. Sitting in the room, all the talk. Niggers in the ballroom, doing the cakewalk. Goes on and on and on. Uh, They're raising hell. Uh, I see a way to settle it, just as clear as water. Let Mr. Booker, uh, Booker Washington marry Teddy's daughter. Or if this doesn't overflow... Teddy's cup of joy, then let Miss Dinah Washington marry Teddy's boy. But everything is settled. Roosevelt is dead. Niggers in the White House cut off Teddy's head. So, so wait, I, you guys are just blowing my mind. So this is this is like Democratic rhetoric. This is this. No, no, no. Yeah, yes, yes. This is from the Democrats. This is the people who today who are yelling. You know, oh my goodness, all the white people are racist. This is from that party. And what's confusing to me, do you have the progressive battle flag? I do. What's confusing to me is this becomes, when, when Wilson, the icon of the progressives, comes in, he segregates or resegregates the entire government. But the progressive party was started by this guy. So how did that happen? Well, remember, Roosevelt, Teddy, went through two phases. He, when he became a progressive, he had quit the Republican Party, and he ran, as you know, on the progressive, it was then called the Bull Moose Ticket, yeah. later in his career. Um, the, uh, Teddy was a kind of a social Darwinist, and he believed in wrestling, he believed in hunting, he was a survival of the fittest guy, but he was also a big family man. So he would never have gone for the Margaret Sanger, sterilize everybody. That was not Teddy's type of progress. Even no, among- no, no, I've got a letter from him where he is saying, our farmers do it, why don't we do it? We're going to look back on this time and say that we didn't do it. He, I agree that there's that strain in Teddy, for sure. I'm simply saying that, that between Teddy Roosevelt's progr- essentially in the early 20th century, you had a fight between Teddy's progressivism and Woodrow Wilson's, Wilson's progress, yes. and Wilson's was much worse. Yes. By the way, unchained post in Democratic leader, Missouri. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Very That's telling, isn't so it? That's so amazing. Yeah. All right, here, here's the segregation stuff we were able to pull. 
So the thing about the segregation I think that's interesting is that the Democratic Party had a legal and and a non-legal strategy. The non-legal strategy was the Klan. That's the military arm that's, that's sort of operating outside the law as a kind of unofficial police. The legal strategy is segregation. And what a lot of young people don't know, every segregation law, no exception in the South, is passed by a Democratic legislature and is signed by a Democratic governor, and then later is enforced by Democratic sheriffs and Democratic city officials. So this was a Democratic Party thing through and through. And so what we have now is an inversion of history. Democrats pretend like somebody else did segregation, and they stopped it, whereas in reality they did it, and the Republicans were instrumental in stopping it. So why are we being called the racists? Because they control the Because in an unbelievable sleight of hand, they've made a list of all their crimes, and they've put some on the South and some on the white man and some on America. So the South did this, the white man did that, America did this, and we are here to cure it. No, actually, you did it. And that's why we have the vault, to make sure we preserve it all so you never, ever forget the real truth. Experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.